All right, this is it, everyone. It is a healthy obsession, a podcast covering soccer culture from around the world. I am your host, Adam Thurwell, and the show is brought to you by Small Goal Soccer. And today on the show, we welcome Jordan Slack. He is currently working in sports science at Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. We're going to be discussing his current role today on the show and the world of sports science in football, as well as Jordan's personal journey from player in the UK. He played in the US here in Arizona for GCU. And now we're going to be discussing what he's currently up to with Spurs. Really interesting. We're going to get into the show now. Cheers. There's only one place to start with this. Anyone that's not listened to this show before knows that Tommy is the the co-pilot to the Tuesday portion of this show. So I think everyone's going to be really interested to know what it was like to play under Thomas Hurdle. <laughs> he was your your coach, so it'll be interesting to know what that experience was like. <laughs> so so Tommy's a great guy. Tommy was probably the main reason and the main guy who got me out to America in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got released by Chesterfield back in the day, I think America was like unbelievable option for me to carry on playing at a good level and to get a decent education uh obviously I had a few schools where I was talking to but as soon as I chatted to Tommy I, I can remember the first conversation I had with him he was like yeah I'm just outside like some baby next to the pool at GCU and I think it he stole me straight away uh, <laughs> in, t- in terms of playing on Tommy obviously great guy like great coach as well um and I'm sure he's progressed and developed even more now since I've last seen him so it would be great to catch up with Tom as well so when you started out you were at Chesterfield that that's such a massive jump from not only just playing in the US but the west coast of the US Phoenix is probably a bit of a random destination for for a lot of English guys to come not only to the states but to make that move so what was that transition like so you started Chesterfield and was there a moment where you were like look this is too good of an opportunity to pass up or did you feel like there was anything you were going to miss an opportunity by leaving England and not playing in England so when I was at Chesterfield, they were League One at the time. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, after my scholarship, didn't get offered a professional contract. Uh, so that kind of left me with two options. I think, obviously, I wanted to stay in the game. I had a couple of options to go and trial at League Two and conference clubs. Uh, obviously, you only guaranteed a two-week trial. And if nothing comes that, then you're back to square one. So I think for me, it was when the option of America came up and I, when a few schools asked about me at exit trials, it just made perfect sense to me because obviously I have a big passion for education still and obviously it bridged both my education and my football together, which are obviously a massive plus for me to carry on doing both at the same time. Uh, and I think for me at that age, I just needed something different. Like I've been academies in England from like nine till 18. So I think for me to actually get that there, from a life experience point of view, is unbelievable. Uh, Obviously, when I first got to Phoenix, obviously, massive culture shock and reality check. Um, but yeah, those five years I was in the US were the most important in my life, to be fair, in, in regards to like gaining independence and actually progressing as like a practitioner, but also like I, my identity as well. What did you think about the just the adjustment to the setup, just as far as collegiate football, soccer in the US is so different to back home, where, as you just described, you kind of go into an academy system in the UK and, and Europe especially, and you progress and you go through the channels there. Do you think that coming over and being part of the educational process was... Is that more beneficial to players, do you think? Or, or is it, do you think, what do you think the contrast is between the two, between just focusing on being at a football club and having the educational portion of it, which is big in the US? Yeah, so I think for me, I think um, 
a pretty bit of a double-edged sword with it. I think, for me, unbelievable to be able to get your degree while you carry on playing. I think a lot of lads, especially under 23s, under 18s, back in England, will sacrifice a lot of education and they'll, they'll pretty much sacrifice everything to try and make it professional. So unfortunately, obviously, the 5% or whatever that do make it are okay, but the, the lads that fall off the wagon a little bit, now it's really tough for them to get, obviously have to go back into education or find other platforms to, to progress. Obviously with the US, I think it's a very, very good system. And when I used to tell my friends back at home, like back at GC, we used to, when they had the new stadium, we used to have like 6,000 people going to watch and something, <laughs> something daft like that. And when yeah, you explain people back home, like they just can't quite grasp and get their heads around it. Mm. And when you talk to them about like basketball or like American football, like the numbers of fans and the popularity of that, like I don't think they quite understand it. Um, so for me, I think it's a massive plus. Um, the only thing that I think the only thing that dampened probably my football development when I was out of it is just how short the seasons were. Mm. Um, so obviously, it only goes from like August to December, and then it's like full on football, which obviously is great while the season's going on. Um, but then I suppose the opposite perspective is that is that obviously the other six months, the other side of the year from January till August is a lot of strength conditioning, a lot of sports science-based work that's actually turned out to be my profession now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to be fair, without that probably four or five months a year where this that was the main focus, probably wouldn't be in the position I am today. Hmm. And while you were finishing at GCU, was there ever a moment where, you know, you sort of looked at the next portion of the playing side of things? So whether it was like a lot of players go and do, I'm sure a lot of your mates that you played with went and did MPSL or USL and that type of thing. Was that ever on the forefront for you to think, look, I can go and do this in the States and continue my playing? Or was it always a means to an end to get the education and go and move on to like the professional portion of your life? So I think for me, when I was at GCU, I think my head was purely on still trying to achieve to be a pro footballer. Mm. I think probably in the last couple of years, understood that as I was getting older, probably could be a bit more unlikely and started to probably put more emphasis on my education and looking at careers outside of being a professional footballer. Um, when I was out there, I, I played a couple of seasons PDL with at Midland for Midland Texas Soccer's which obviously good experience and like actually experience playing like almost league football in America I, I did have the option to go and try out with Phoenix Rising when just before I did leave hmm. um, but I think for me the deal was almost so good at GCU because I was fortunate enough to have just about a full scholarship with the education and football scholarship so nice. I think having like my housing my food everything paid for uh, and obviously as soon as that student visa ran out it was difficult to I'd have to start from scratch again, so I'd have to buy my own place, my own car. So it would have been very difficult to probably stay out there. It's probably you and Tommy both know once you've mm. got to that point where you end your, your college career. Um, so I think it was probably within the last year I decided that I probably needed to get home and start building my career that way. And do you think now that uh, you mentioned it there at the beginning of the call, is there more emphasis now on players that are younger and when you were coming out of college? to get that education because of that such small percentage of lads that do actually go on and make it professional. It's very difficult, isn't it? to like make that jump to where not only like, are you playing for a Phoenix rising or a lower level American team where you're not making enough money really to call it a career where you're making the sort of money, even major league soccer players don't make the lower end of the, the, the payments are not great to where it's like, 
you know, like not got like a great lifestyle from it. So do you think more players now, younger players are going to be putting more of an emphasis on the education and off field portion of it than they had done previously? Um, so a bit 50, 50, I think it's still, I still, I do think they are pushing education more in England with their scholarships and with the youth teams. And, um, I think now there's a lot of different liaison officers and stuff like that in place and player care managers like we have at Spurs where, who are actually making players aware that mm. this might not be their career and they have to look elsewhere and they have to make sure they are keeping up with education and stuff. Mm-hmm. But saying that, like this, still, it's only, it's only up until 18 they have to do education. That's only once a week. Um, and then as soon as they get to under 23 or professional player, like education kind of evaporates. Obviously, when you go to college in America and you'd still be doing like full-time education. Um, so I, I still think there is a gateway to do something like uh, be an under-23 player and do a degree at the same time. They definitely have enough time, and it, but obviously it's up to their self-sacrifice and commitment to be able to do it. So I, I do think there's still room for development. Mm. Uh, but definitely under-18s, the emphasis on education is growing. Um, but obviously there's still nothing like the, the college game. Out here. Apart from when I went to Loughborough, there's something that, almost trying to mimic the what's going on at like GCU and in America, but um, just not quite to the same degree yet. It seems that it's even, I don't know if you've seen or read anything about this, but there's a lot of young American players sort of six, 16, 17, like Matthew Hoppy's just gone over to Germany and, it seems now that even the university process might be getting skipped for some players. Like if they're that good, that they're getting shipped straight to Europe and skipping that American kind of like adapting to if you're good enough, you're old enough mentality, which, you know, Britain and British soccer has had and European soccer has had forever. And I don't know if that's just like a sort of like now thing, or if that's just going to be a cultural thing that's going to be shifting. What do you think? I think from from like European clubs' perspective, no matter how old they are, if they're good enough, they, they'll play. Um, mm. Obviously, for them, their main incentive is to win. So I think as much as they do care about the players, like obviously, if they're good enough to be playing full-time, I think obviously their education, unfortunately, drops down the pecking order of priority a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, it's similar as over here. Obviously, like if we have some good young guys that come up to train with the first team, like they can catch up on education is, is almost the view, not like, oh, they can't train because they've got, got to do the maths class or whatever. So I still think that, yeah. but I, I do think that the importance of still make sure you keep up with the education, whether you're 15 or going on 20 is still very important. Yeah, 100%. So when you were at GCU, was there like a moment that you got into the sports science part of it? I think you were doing, um, uh, you started that at GCU, right? Like the part of your education where you're at now currently? So I think, um, so I'd say from probably like when I was at Chef Wednesday, about 14, 15, I, I can always, I, can, I can still remember this conversation vividly. Like one of my coaches kind of said to me, I don't think you're fast or strong enough. And I think as soon as you said something like that, something like clicked in my brain mm. and I got very passionate and like enthusiastic about like, you could call it sports science stuff, but back then I just class that like extra fitness work and going to the gym. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, I've always, and Tommy will probably tell you this as well, probably since then and all through my time at GCU, like I, almost to a point where I probably obsessed too much for the word for, with conditioning and fitness and going to the gym. Mm. So I think, I've always had a passion for it. It was probably when I got to university 
and probably started looking at other career paths that I knew that that's something I'd like to probably specialise in and probably expertise in. Um, so I think that's probably the, the ticking point. But I think for me, the main reason I got into it is because back in the day, I saw that as a way to improve myself as a player. And what's that like? So you go in and you start doing, and that seems to me like a, I mentioned earlier, we talked to Robin, who is at United, and he's involved. And it's just an ever changing field, even since you started doing it and the years that you've been involved in this. Is it just a constantly ongoing educational cycle of what I don't want to say trends because that's probably not the right word, but like, because um, I'm sure there is trends and sort of fads within the industry. And yeah, so, so what is that like just from an educational perspective? Is Spurs constantly pushing you just to kind of uh, adapt and learn new things that are evolving in the industry? Yeah, for sure. I think um, I probably noticed this more with you, my PhD at the same time as well. Mm. Um, so, so I'm doing a PhD at the minute looking at like muscle stiffness and using this new advance in technology called like shear wave elastography with the ultrasound. Mm. And it's one of those things I think, it's a quote that I like, it's like, the more you realize you know is the more you realize you have no idea how much you know. So I think sometimes, and I read an interesting article recently, like saying when you just come out of uni, you feel like you know everything, but then it's almost like as soon as you get into an industry, you realize, I suppose it's your next kind of pathway that you start to realize that there's loads of stuff you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think with, with Spurs and the PhD, it's like everyone's constantly trying to, in the sciences, advancing that much you're constantly trying to look for the, the next big thing or the next thing that's going to help uh, but there's also, also more than one way to skin a cat so I think it's just about being open-minded and looking at what options there's available to to improve the department or improve the ways I do my PhD and stuff like that so I think it's just a thing of never stagnating always trying to learn so but and I think that's why sometimes you come across as trends because people will try stuff and if it doesn't work, they'll move on to the next trend or if it's not as effective as the next one, they'll, they'll go back. So I think that's sometimes why it looks like uh, it's just trends repeating themselves as well. So, so just backing up a bit, like what's this trajectory been like? Because Tom described it to me and, you know, I, I like just off our basic conversation, it seems to have happened really quickly where you've gone from player to uh, you know, getting involved now, you're at Tottenham Hotspur, obviously at the highest level. So what's that path been like, like that jump? How did it even come about? Yeah, so I, a little bit about my, my journey. So when I got back from GCU, uh, pretty much I applied to do my master's at Loughborough, pretty much immediately as soon as I got back. Mm. Um, I, in a way, that was a way to like prolong me playing at a half-decent level as well, because I, I managed to play for Loughborough ones. Um so I was still playing at a decent level in non-league for Loughborough, and then what, did my. What was, what, what was that like? The the contrast in the style, like the standard of football GCU to Loughborough. Um, the style of playing in England is obviously what like wildly different to playing out here in the states. Yeah, yeah. How did you find it? So, so it's always a bit weird because obviously a lot of the lads who play for Loughborough ones were like eighteen, nineteen, like young whippersnappers, like be like me when I was in my freshman or sophomore year of college. Yeah. Um, obviously I, I went there as obviously a more mature student doing my master's so I, I was actually probably a, quite an old man in comparison to a lot of these Loughborough students <laughs> um, it's it quite funny with Loughborough like a lot of them were very similar to me but went to Loughborough instead of how I went to America so mm-hmm. a lot of them from academy background so when we played at home we played on a pristine pitch sometimes we looked like Barcelona like playing against some of these non-league cross squads yeah. and obviously it's the reverse when we go away from home where it was a bit more tough when we're playing at Raggy ass rovers or whatever we are <laughs> trying to get the shit kicked out of us. Um, yeah. But in, 
I'd say technically Loughborough was probably superior just because a lot of them were fresh out academies. Yeah. Um, in regards to a fitness and conditioning point of view, America 100% had better athletes. Mm. Um, but I think that's almost, that's also to do with lifestyle as well. I think a lot of you, a lot of the guys in England do go to university, obviously, uh, legal to drink. So they're on a few nights out in the week. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. and I think at GCA it's a bit more regimented, like training every day. So mm. I think they're, they're probably the main differences. Yeah, interesting. So, sorry, you were saying uh, just like so you got to Loughborough, you're doing the Masters, you're back playing football again. So, pick up from there just as far as your journey. Yeah, so when I, I suppose in my brain, I, I, I didn't necessarily thought I needed a Masters. I more wanted to use my Masters to get an internship or get find a way in to get to a club because Loughborough is obviously unbelievable for networking mm-hmm. in elite sport. Luckily, pretty much within a couple of weeks of starting my Masters, I got offered the job of doing like intern sports scientists at Leicester. Uh, so that was the season where Clubwell was in and, it, and he obviously got sacked and Brendan came in. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, unbelievable experience that year. And I think um, that definitely helped. I think I was a bit naive to working in a football club and some of the politics that goes on. So obviously for me, that was an unbelievable experience to, for one, working in a football club and two, actually becoming better as a practitioner. So if I'm honest, that that year was probably the hardest of my life purely because I was a student at Loughborough full-time. I was an intern at Leicester full-time, not on the best pay. So I was actually doing a lot of private one-to-one work as well, mm-hmm. uh, basically to support that. Um, so I had a bit of a corny uh, PT name called Stop Slacking. Uh, <laughs> so, and to be fair, that, that kicked off. And I, I was basically training like young aspiring footballers or rugby players and just general population. Uh, so, so that was a bit of like a side hustle just to try and get some cash in to afford to go to Leicester and back and just to try and continue developing. Mm. Uh, it got to the end of that year. Uh, and to be fair, the private work was actually going that well at the private facility. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get offered to stay on at Leicester just because of the restructuring of staff. Um, so my kind of heart was set on uh, just carrying on private full-time. Uh, and to be fair, this is obviously where the magic Loughborough happened. Richard Allen, who used to work at Spurs, came as head of football at Loughborough mm. and uh, had a decent relationship with Richard. And then literally a couple months after I'd finished at Leicester and just been carrying on doing my private work, he had a phone call saying there's a, a space open up at Tottenham to be a uh, to be an under 18s fitness coach, uh, and, and basically Tottenham's philosophy was they liked to have people who were ex players, so they could and they're very big fans of like technical warm ups and stuff like that. So again, the ball involves it. So I suppose you, you send me football coach if anything. Right. Um, so I interviewed at Spurs, and um, it actually turned out that. I got a position at Spurs, but it weren't the one I interviewed for. So I actually got a PhD role. Um, so a bit random, but I, so I'm actually funded. I'm actually, my salary is paid for by Nike to do my PhD. Okay. Uh, and then I'm almost like placed at Spurs as a, as a member of staff. Hmm. Um, so, so obviously for me, when they first offered me the role, it was unbelievable because I got a funded PhD paid for by Nike. So under the Nike Sports Research Lab, and then also a full-time member of staff at Spurs. So for me, I was like dream world, like as, as well as the private work was going, like there's no way I could ever turn that down. Um, yeah, and then to fit, and I think one thing that probably helped me to get the position was emphasising in the interview that I'd already balanced 
working and playing and doing my education at the same time already. So for them, obviously, obviously for Spurs to get a free member of staff because now I could pay in. Um, but for them, obviously, it was a massive plus because they knew I would be able to manage it all. Uh, so I went through is that one year with the under under 18s under 23s and my main, my main job role varied quite a generalist so I do reconditioning SNC and sports science kind of as a mixture the, uh, and to fair with the academy obviously because it's more development than performance down there it meant I got a lot more opportunities to deliver gym sessions pitch sessions and stuff like that mm. uh, and then Basically, due to staff leaving first team sports scientists and going elsewhere in October this last year, that's when the opportunity came for me to, to go up to first team. So, still in the same role as doing my PhD with Nike, but obviously now placed within as a first team sports scientist rather than with the academy. So, it has been quite an astronomical rise. And I a lot of it is obviously just being right place, right time, and just making most of the opportunities. but. But but yeah, even even now it's it's a bit surreal for me. Like there's some pinch me moments. Like also working on this manager and working on some of the players there is. Um, like if you asked me when I left GCU if I thought I'd be in this position, I'd, I'd just laughed at you. Um, but luckily everything's worked off, and at the moment things are going really well. Uh, and I suppose just like we talked, spoke about a couple of minutes ago, like for me, still learning, still trying to, still trying to sponging as much information as I can uh, and just trying to progress really <laughs> yeah no I mean it's, it's great it's great to hear that like just hard work and obviously you're doing a good job of, of the knowledge and in the network as well it's like fantastic to see what's that jump like just from the uh, working with like the development teams up to the first team just as far as the mentality shift goes for the players yeah so I, I, I think um, also someone like Spurs who are in like Euro European competitions and also in still a lot of cup competitions later in the season. Mm. I suppose for us, like literally we play every three or four days. Um, so a lot of emphasis from like our performance department is basically recovery. Mm. Uh, and just making sure that lads aren't playing and getting enough conditioning work so they're ready if they're called upon. Obviously in the academy, obviously the weeks are a lot more structured. Pretty much you play every Saturday. Uh, with the odd midweek fixture so you pretty much know when you can hit the lads hard when you can condition them you've got a lot more opportunity and exposure to do stuff like gym and conditioning um so over there i'd probably say you're still trying to push to performance and they're still growing and developing so you're still able to intervene also when you get to first team a lot of these guys have made 100 plus appearances in premier league so i think it's understanding your, your support staff and understanding that you're just there to aid them where possible and it's not like you're trying to push for the, the next best player like you were with the academy and that's got like you, you brought up something really interesting there is that you know at christmas time is probably as a football supporter is like favorite time of year because there's football on every two days right <laughs> like it and it's great from a spectator standpoint because you're like oh this is brilliant you get to watch a match every couple of days that's happening all the time at the moment you know it's like christmas all the time as a match as you just said every few days you've got especially if you're a team like Spurs, you're in the Cups. What is that like just from a, um, not only a strategic standpoint, but trying to get back into a position where, you know, you're managing that and it's not, I, I don't know if you've noticed it, but are we just seeing more injuries now because of this? Or do you think that that's just more commonplace because of the physicality and the demands on the players now? Like how, how are teams even dealing with this from a preparation standpoint? I mean, it's it's tough. I mean, with, mm. with the amount of games we have, literally, 
it's just play, recover, play, recover. Like there's hardly much opportunity to train in between games at the moment. If that's for the player. Um, obviously this season's obviously crazy season with stuff like COVID happening, mm. uh, which is obviously condensed the season even greater. Um, so, so that obviously is an outlier reason why injuries might be skyrocketing at the moment mm. across football. Um, but but yeah, obviously, and I suppose it's different for each team. Obviously, when I was at Leicester that season, they weren't in any European competitions or anything like that. So right. they had a, a week more similar to what our academy might have a playing Saturday to Saturday. So obviously, it's a lot more time to recover, a lot more days to actually train hard. Um, so, so yeah, it's, I suppose it's a different mentality, but it, I think for obviously these guys, should make sure they every three or four days they're ready to go. And whatever we can do to help them do that within that three days in between games is is our job really. And what's the uh, like the next part of this? Do you think just from a recovery and, and as far as the industry goes, what do you think are you like some of the things the, the industry has advanced so much over the last decade, right? So what do you think are some of the things that you're seeing now being implemented for recovery and but also from a strength and conditioning standpoint for players? What are some of the things that you think you're seeing that are next for players? So interesting. That's something that kind of my PhD is looking at, at the moment. So um, so basically, what Nike are interested in. Is basically, basically at the moment, there's certain things to do for like monitoring fatigue and recovery status. Like we might do like counter movement jumps on a plus two or groin squeezes just to see like what their sub maximal attempt is compared to what their maximal usually is, um, just to try and monitor fatigue. But all that's kind of subjective or objective to a degree, just by performance characteristics. Obviously. So with my PhD using the ultrasound, basically we're trying to look at, obviously this might be a bit too sciencey, but getting into like mechanical properties, looking at the muscle stiffness and seeing what what is actually happening inside the body. Um, and f- for us, if, if something like this could take off and we can actually use this ultrasound machine to, to measure muscle stiffness, and this could be like a bit of a game changer recovery just so we can actually indicate whether we think a player needs to do more or do less. Um, and have more of an honest say about where we think a player is. Mm. Um, so I, I think there's so many developing technologies that people are trying to bring out to try and aid this. And I think obviously a lot of technologies and a lot of suppliers now understanding like at this top level, a lot of it is purely recovery now. Uh, and Robin Thorpe, who you spoke to a couple of weeks ago, is a, is a master of this. Obviously his old PhD was on recovery and some of the stuff he implemented at Manchester United was unbelievable mm. uh, and I think that's something we strive for at clubs like this um, so, so yeah I think I think that's that's the reason for like PhD research to try and keep pushing these areas and pushing these boundaries really and as far as like, we talked about this last week Tom and I on the show like we talked about Ronaldo specifically and obviously he's a bit of a unicorn because of just who he is but Zlatan and, and players now aging up and still playing at the highest level. Is that something that you think that we're going to see more of alongside sports science and the evolution of that industry? Are players just going to be able to play into their late 30s and 40s like they used to play into their early 30s? Like when I was, I, when I was growing up, it was like sort of mid-30s. If you were lucky, you'd get to your mid-30s and play at a high level, right? Now it's like maybe late 30s and early 40s. Is that going to be the new norm because of the advances in sports science i think i think so i think um obviously sports science physios strength conditioning everyone kind of has a has a bit of a say in that and hopefully trying to prolong careers and 
make him have a successful career as well. But I also think a lot more players now are they're investing more in their career as well. So they, they might pay for their own fitness coach or physio or medical team, mm. they might pay for their own home gym or own medical supplies at home. Like I think now people players are more aware of what they need to do to prolong their career and have an aid recovery, improved performance, stuff like that. And I think obviously as generations go on, they are they are proper athletes now, these players. I know back in the day, obviously, some fantastic players, but we wouldn't necessarily call them fantastic athletes with sort <laughs> yeah. of their lifestyles and stuff like that. Right. So I think that's... So I think it's it's just erasing everything, really. Erasing their awareness of their own bodies and what they need to do to improve. Mm-hmm. Probably erasing knowledge and the ability for like sports scientists, physios to improve their practice. So I think it's, it's probably a combination of, of all of that, really. If someone listening to this is uh, maybe, maybe a footballer, same as you were at a university, or they wanted to get involved in this field, what do you think is, you've obviously done a great job of kind of all of the educational portion of it, the networking part of it. What do you think is like the first stepping stone for someone to get in if they're interested in this field and working in football? I, I'd definitely say for me, I think the thing that's probably benefited me the most as a practitioner, I'd say my internship at Leicester was unbelievable. Mm. Um, and obviously, I think it was a, a massive reality check for me. And I think, it, obviously, it, it opens your eyes to what elite sports is like. Um, but for me, if an internship's with an elite team or whether it's with just a Sunday league team or something like that, I think just being able to deliver and get with a team, I, I think you do need to have like a certain personality to work within team sports. Like You, you, you have to be able to build rapport with the lads as well. Um, but I think just that hard work of actually learning how to be with people. And for me personally, when I did my private work, when I worked with a whole array of different clients and personnel, that definitely improved just stuff, easy stuff like coaching skills and communication skills, just being able to, and now I'm in my position in now, it does make it easier. Um, Just because you've got a lot of, it's a bit like the 10,000 hour rule. Like you you just get that much practice under your belt, like Mm. whether it's a Premier League footballer or a Sunday League footballer or a, 16-year-old trying to break through into an academy or a first team, like you've coached that much that it doesn't really affect you. Mm. Um, so I definitely think that's one of the one of the main things. And I think you've always got to. You can never think you're too good for a role. I think you just need to get as much practicing as possible. I think that's my my best advice, really. Yeah, and no, that's good. And what about you? So you've got like uh, an interesting position now because you've got a great role at Spurs. You're working with Nike and what's next for you like what would you what would be like the uh, pinnacle for you is it like a england job or like what would it be for you uh, i'm not sure really i think uh, so i've still got two years left with my night contract to complete my phd mm-hmm. uh, so i've short term just carrying on as normal uh, luckily i've been offered a, a pre-contract agreement at spurs to stay on as sports scientist so hopefully i'll be here for uh, for a couple more years but nice. i think at the moment i think obviously me i'm even though I'm in this role, I still think I've, I need to be driven and hungry to like prove my worth in this role. And I still think I'd like to spend at least, I think for me, like I've, I've set myself like a five year plan to over this next five years, hopefully add some value and I'd hopefully improve the department in my own way. Um, so, so I think that's immediately my thoughts, obviously stuff like England sports and stuff like that. Obviously that's like dream role later down the line, but I, mm. but for me at the moment, 
unbelievable experience working in, within elite sport. And to be fair, in the future, I'll, I'll definitely be open to going back private again and having my, my own business as well. Now, are you seeing more, more and more people uh, get into that field as players need it? You're seeing more and more uh, like people come away maybe from working for a club and going freelance and sort of having their own firm and doing that? Definitely. Yeah, I think um, obviously I suppose the negative working in football is obviously the schedule dictates your work commitments and stuff like that. It's, I suppose as much blessing and advantage as there is in football, working it, obviously you, you do kind of miss your Christmas, you you're working most weekends. You, yeah, you pretty much only really have six weeks off where you can actually take a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of the top practitioners and the people that have been in the game for ages of sports scientists, like some of the best ones might have been doing that 15, 20 years nonstop. So I think obviously then you might have responsibilities with family and stuff like that and other commitments. So I think that, that's probably why you see a tendency for people to, to jump out of the game and start mm-hmm. their own a bit more flexibility. Yeah, it's a lifestyle thing, right? Like you want to be able to kind of dictate your own schedule and take take back some of uh, control of your own uh, hours and whatnot. Yeah, it makes sense. What about lower league teams? Because the resources obviously are completely different. Uh, and Nike and Spurs type of deal or Manchester United in uh, the higher leagues. But are lower league teams starting to take this kind of thing a bit more seriously as far as player, um, sports science and without the resources that a big club would have? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think... Um even like League Two teams, conference teams now, a lot of them will have like sports scientists and strength conditioning coaches and stuff like that. Obviously, the department might not be as big. Um, they might not have access to what facilities we have here. But I, I almost think that's sometimes even better because that improves your practitioner, makes you, you have to be creative with how you do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be fair, I've, you, you see a lot of people in positions similar to myself who will drop down to championship league one league two to kind of lead their department rather than work under somebody else um and i think that's coming more common now just so they that the lead figure um but yeah i think obviously people are now understanding like the importance and of sports science and what that investment can possibly have for the club so i think even lower down the leagues they, they're trying to push for it as much as possible well and, and interesting like it's come up a few times with different people we've had on the, the show is uh you have to kind of tiptoe around how you frame the statement, but players are assets for clubs, right? So investing in their strength and longevity ups resale value. And I find that fascinating because it is kind of a weird thing to say a player, a person, a human being is a, an asset of the club, but it's true, right? They're, they are, it's a business and the player is the asset of the business. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think from like sports science point of view and this probably medical physio as well, mm if whatever reason one of these assets can't perform or can't play, then they're no longer an asset to a club. So I suppose for us, it's one of the major significant things we can do is try and keep players on the pitch and keep these assets either performing or not being injured or struggling or to prolong their career. I suppose that's what sports science really is. Sure. All right, mate. Well, listen, it's been brilliant, really interesting. And before we let you go, what's the best place for like Twitter, Instagram, that kind of thing, social media? Anyone wants to follow along your journey? Uh, so it's at George Slack on Instagram and right. then Jordan underscore Slack on Twitter. All right, brilliant, mate. Yeah, it's been, uh, been fascinating to listen to and congratulations as well, mate. It's really good to see uh, you, you do your thing and get to where you are. It's, uh, it's a great story. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Really nice to Yeah, you too, mate. Cheers. Take care. 
Right, that's it. It's the end of today's show, everybody. I want to thank Jordan again for coming on the show and everyone for tuning in and checking us out. We'll be back on Tuesday with a weekly show. Until then, be safe and we will see you all again soon. Cheers.